Good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Hey, I like it. Name is Branziski, lead pastor here. Shameless promo. Come on, church. You, you got it. You, you're going to see this for the next 40 minutes. You need to sign up because if you don't, I'm going to wear it again next Sunday. Just, just letting you know. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if I should give certain staff like Chad free reign to do things like that. <laughs> And, and here's the sad thing is, he could do that all day. Like, he, re- he really could. If you're not careful, he's got a lot of lame pastor jokes and everything. Okay, anywho, um, you're not here to hear all of that. But um, I want to share with you this morning a powerful portion of Scripture that I believe that if we grab hold of it as a church, it will do wonders. Not just in our own faith, but in the community. I remember a few years ago, um, I shouldn't say a few years ago, now I remember that I'm older than I was. Um, It was more like 17, 18 years ago when I was a new believer. What was that? Are you okay? (laughs) Um, I was a new believer, probably about nine months into my faith, and I got this opportunity to go on a mission trip to Romania, and I was part of this band, and we got asked to be the band to kind of play the music for these evangelistic campaigns that we were going to be part of in Romania. And I remember when we got there, we had so many expectations. I, I had my heart set that God was going to use us, and revival was going to break out through the nation of Romania, and he was going to do amazing and powerful things, and, and he did. But there was a lot of things, too, that I wasn't prepared for. For instance, I've never been to a country that was like slowly coming out of communism, right? And there was still a lot of economic issues and poverty, um, social issues, people groups and factions and all these kind of things. And I had no idea how hard that infiltrated Christianity. And so I remember um, about a few weeks or like about, it was about a week into the trip, the guy that we were working with, he, he pigeonholed three of us guys and he said, okay, I want you three guys to come with us to this village, and I want you to preach the gospel. Um, and he's, he told us, and it was really exciting, he's like, some of these folks in these villages have probably never heard the gospel before, so which we were like, awesome, let's go, we're going to, you know, we're going to bring the whole village to Jesus, and all this kind of stuff. And so we got excited, we went, and I, I, I remember it specifically to this day. I remember the smell, I remember the look, I remember everything. So about day three into this, like, village tour, um, the guy goes to me, he goes, it's your turn to share your story and your gospel and message and all kind of stuff. And I was really excited. I was like, awesome. They're all going to come to know Jesus. Like, I was like, because I'm awesome, right? Like, I'm on fire. So like, I started to think that. And I started to share my story. And I started to talk about grace. And I remember in the front left, there was this woman. And she just starts weeping. I mean, like, recognizably weeping. Like, the whole room was looking at, at her. And I'm going, oh, the Lord is using me. You know, I was like, I was getting really excited. I was like, I am awesome. And so at the end of the message, the interpreter asked everybody in the room, would anybody like to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Now, what happened next, I did not anticipate. She raised her hand, which I was like, of course, I was great. I gave a great message. She would, of course, do that. And um, guys, I'm trying to be funny, right? (laughs) And so she started to ask some questions. And she started to say things like, I want to love Jesus. I want to live for him. I want to give my life for him. But I've been told by the elders in our village that I can't be a Christian because I won't get baptized because I have a fear of going under the water. And she asked, can I be a Christian? Does God love me? Even if I choose to not be baptized. 
the interpreter relayed that message to us, and, and then he also let us know, he goes, those elders are in this room. <laughs> and we were like, we looked right at it, and we're like, listen, Jesus loves you regardless if you get baptized or not. He loves you regardless of what you do. He, re, he loves you. When he died on the cross for you, that was it. He's beloved with you. He, he, he says, you're my daughter. I, I, I sent my son to die for you. And then we started to tell her even about the story about the person on the cross that Jesus even said to him. He's like, listen, you will be with me today in paradise. And we're like, that person never got baptized. And all of a sudden, what happened next was so beautiful. But there was so much ruckus that was happening in that room because some of the elders didn't like the fact that we said that. that they didn't like the fact that we said, you can be a Christian and Jesus does love you regardless if you get baptized. They were offended by that message. But what I remember wasn't the debate because there was a debate. What I remember in that whole moment was this woman. I remember the look on her face. I've never seen joy and freedom like I've seen that day. She realized it's just Jesus. And I remember walking out of there going, why does this happen? Why does the gospel message get so polluted by all of these extra things? And I remember coming back home from that mission trip, and about six months in, I'm in this discipleship relationship with this person who I admired. I looked up to him. I thought they were a very mature believer, right? And we were studying the Bible together, and we were going through the letter of Acts, reading about the history of the early church and all this kind of stuff. And we got to this place where he started to ask me, he's like, how do you know you're saved? And I was like, well, I... I, I Gave, I, I said, yes, Jesus, you're Lord of my life. I received the forgiveness. I believe I've died with you and I was buried with you and I've been raised to life with you. I believe all of that. And I told him, I was like, listen, I've seen the fruit. I've seen the change in my life. Other people have seen it. And then he goes, yeah, but have you spoken in tongues? Now, listen, I'm not making a value statement or a theological statement on the validity of speaking in tongues. I'm not doing that. But what I am doing is questioning if tongues is necessary for salvation. Because in that question, in that conversation I had with that person who I respected and I loved Jesus and I wanted to make sure that I had everything that Jesus had to offer. I wanted to be right with him. And so I was like, no, no, I haven't. You know? And so I was like, what's wrong with me? And so therefore I sent off on this journey of praying and asking the Lord, like, baptize me. Like, I, I, want, the, I want to speak in tongues and I want to speak in, like, and all these things. And I would pray and pray and pray and read and read and ask nothing. And I started to feel really guilty. What's wrong with me? Is there something deficient in me? And I think I just simply resolved that I'm going to be a, um, a, a broken, less Christian because I don't. So maybe I'm not really saved. I don't know. And it, thought, it threw me in a tailspin because I didn't know. And I remember, I was like, listen, Jesus made it so clear that he's the only way. We just we confess with our mouth and believe in heart that Christ is Lord and you'll be saved. Like, like he didn't say, like, do this and then be baptized and then this and then that will happen, all these other things. It's like, no, it's just Jesus. And I remember the beauty of simplicity. And I went, why do we do this? Jesus died on the cross so that that alone is sufficient for everything we need to be full in Christ. Paul is writing to this young church in Colossae. 
believers who heard the message of Jesus Christ were so moved. They gave their lives to Jesus and they want to live for him. They want to love him. And all of a sudden, all these outside influences are coming in. They're saying, oh, great. I'm so glad that you're godly and that you love Jesus and you found Jesus. But have you been circumcised? Because you're not really in until you're circumcised. You're not going to really participate in all of the promises of God unless you identify fully through circumcision or you don't have this deep, mystical, spiritual, esoteric encounters with angels and all these things. And if you don't have those, you don't get visions and that, you're missing out. If you don't eat the right food, you don't practice the right days, you don't do this or that, you're missing out. But Paul's like, no. No. Jesus. That's it. It's Jesus. And so he writes, and we've been reading this for the last few weeks, but this morning he hits it really hard. And then next Sunday he's going to turn a corner and go, this is how you should live. So if you could turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. Paul writes, Therefore, church, say that with me. Therefore, circle it underline it, make a lot of arrows to point at it, and then make an arrow to point backwards, right? So you can read what was just said when you read this thing. Therefore, Paul just talked about how he has forgiven us all of our transgressions. That once we were alienated, that once we were uncircumcised in our flesh, that we were once enemies of God, dead in our sin, but he made us alive. He did it even before we knew we needed a Savior, even before we knew we needed God, even before we loved God, even before we thought of being godly and religious. He died for our sins. He canceled the debt that was written and stood against you with its legal demand. He took that debt, that IOU, he nailed it to the cross, and he paid off your debt in full with his blood. And then he disarmed the powers and the principalities that had control and tyranny over your life. He did it. It had nothing to do with you. Zero. You couldn't add to it. You couldn't take away from it. Therefore, because of the gospel, because of the grace, therefore, let no one, hear this church, let no one pass judgment And let me be clear on this. This word no one doesn't just include other people. It also includes yourself. That's important. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Therefore, he's done it all. Because of that, preach the gospel yourself. Remember, don't move on from there ever. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. This, therefore, is a statement or a challenge for you and I in the church to guard the treasure of grace. We must do all that we can to fight for the purity of the gospel message. Because I'm telling you, as much as we love grace... As much as we find grace liberating and freeing, grace, when it's preached, is always in opposition. It's always being opposed to our selfishness. Grace is risky. With grace comes freedom. 
right? And Paul even hit that in Romans where other people are like, listen, like, well, if God forgives me and the grace is free, like, that's like, should we sin more so that his grace is on display more? And Paul's like, no, by no means. Don't sin more so that grace abounds. No. But that's the, the risk that comes with grace. Our selfishness, our sense of control and pride and recognition and all these things, like we, we, we don't like grace. We want to be able to quantify things. We want to prove things. We want things in a formula. We want to prove to God that somehow we're good enough, that somehow I did enough. And now, God, you're in my debt versus I'm in your debt. And we just have a hard time understanding grace because of sin. Let no one pass judgment. Guard this treasure of grace with every single thing you have. Guard it. Guard it. But you don't eat the right food. You don't dress the right way. You don't sing the right way. You don't look the right way. You got a tattoo. You're Baptist. You're Lutheran. You're assemblies of God. It's like, let no one pass judgment on you based upon these dietary restrictions and these new moons and these Sabbaths and all these regulations. Like, these were things that the Jews held dear. They were part of their culture. They were part of their ordinances that God gave them. We find them in the Old Testament. But they had a specific purpose, and that specific purpose was to aid them, to help them understand the difference between what is pure and impure, what is holy, what is unholy, to help them connect with God. But because that legalism is so deceptive, it slipped into something that it was never meant to be. When they started to talk about circumcision, when they started to talk about dietary laws, when I started talking about all of these other rules and regulations, it turned into a who's in and who's out and who's right and who's wrong. Folks, that is legalism. That is legalism. Anytime we elevate a ritual, a discipline, a practice, an ordinance, a preference, whatever above the gospel, or if we equate any of that to the gospel, it's legalism. Period. Legalism is a slippery slope, okay? Like, I want you to understand this. It's a slippery slope because a lot of these practices, they're good. They're helpful. We need it. But however, because of our sin in our flesh, we take those things and we go, okay, now look what I've done. Now look what I've done here. God, I've, I've prayed three times. You owe me a blessing. God, like, I, I know I sinned, but now let me prove to you I love you by doing X, Y, and Z. This is how we keep people out. This is how we bring people in. Anytime I do that, it is an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Disciplines cannot deal with the real issue. They can be band-aid solutions, but they cannot deal with the dead and sick heart. Only grace can deal with that. Legalism can only do a few things. First, it spawns judgmentalism. Legalism spawns or produces judgmentalism. Because if we become legalistic, we start to say, my rules, my way of doing it is right. And if you have a preference or an opinion that's outside of it, it's probably wrong. And so therefore, you're not right until you do this. Have you ever met a joyful person who's judgmental? Like, aren't they people you just want to hang out with? 
Like, man, I, I, I want to go to a party. Who should I invent? Oh, Mr. Judgmental Billy. Judgmentalism just sucks the joy right out of life. Judgmentalism is miserable for two people, those who are being judged and the one who's doing the judging. Legalism, that's, that's the inevitability because when we become legalistic, it starts to fuel our pride. It starts to fuel our insecurity. It starts to feed our flesh and we start to think, hey, look it, I'm good. Legalism is joyless. It cannot produce joy. It cannot produce life. All of this ritual, religious practice, all these disciplines, they can aid if we're doing it in the posture of abiding in Jesus. But apart from that, it just robs joy. If you ever come into a church and there is no joy shown in their worship, if the joy of the Lord is not reflected in what they do and how they sing and how they praise and how they serve, listen, I will guarantee you, legalism is not too far away. I guarantee you. Because legalism is about uniformity. We've got to act a certain way. We've got to look a certain way. We've got to be a certain way. We've got to do this and do that. And man, I don't even know if I like what they're doing up front. I don't agree with this practice. I don't like the way we do small groups. I don't like the way that sounded. I don't like this or that and that. I only like it when that happens, and then I will give, and then that's right. Church, this phrase, judgment, is big. Let no one judge you. And so all week long, all week long, I was, go- I was thinking about wanting to share this and confess it with you, and it- it's been really, really hard to want to confess it because I don't want you to judge me. But I know if you judge me, that means you're a sinner. <laughs> and if you judge me and I find out you're a sinner, that means job security. So we're, we're good. So I felt, hey, let me confess this. Um, like, honestly, like, I'm, I'm struggling. Like, even though I already did first service, I'm still struggling because I know what some people will think because I've already been judged on it before. Man, why is it so hard? I don't read my Bible every day. I come some Sundays feeling like a failure as a pastor because I didn't get up at five in the morning and come here and pray for hours over every single seat. And I didn't have a word from the Lord. Or maybe I didn't have the best quiet times that week. And I'm like, I'm not good enough. They need to know their pastor reads their Bible every day as if that's the feather I should have in my hat. Folks, I know like for like evangelicals like today, like our quiet times can become a very legalistic thing. Right? And I know the tension as I'm talking about this. Some of you are like, well, it's good. Yes, it is good. But when you, when you come to pray or to read your Bible or their church, and the first thought you have is, God, I'm sorry. I should be doing more. It's legalistic. Folks, the church in Colossae didn't have this. 
For 1,500 years, the Bible wasn't in print, right? Like, they just didn't have it. Now, it's great. It's a gift to us, and we want to know him more, and, and I want to, and so that should be my desire. But if I constantly go to my Bible, and it's done out of a motivation of guilt, like, God, I should be doing more. I'm so sorry. I know I could pray more. I know I could give more. I know I could serve more. God, I know, I know, I know. And then once we do, then we're also looking at other people, and we start to judge. Like, how many times do you read your Bible? As if that's like the, the, the quota for being a good Christian, right? And then not only that, we also have these thoughts. Like, if, if, like I'm not a morning person. It's a cruel thing that God made a pastor because I'm not a morning person. I don't wake up till noon, right? And so, like, the fact that, like, I can't get up and read my Bible in the morning, I already feel guilty about that. Like, people are saying, you've got to have your, your quiet time in the morning. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to pray. You've got to get on your knees and pray and talk to God, get in his word. Let that be the first thing. Awesome. If that's you, awesome. It's not me. Like, if I have my quiet time at 1 p.m., does that make my quiet time less effective because it's at 1 instead of at 6? And what if I don't journal? Like, I, I don't journal, but what if I journal and it's only like one sentence? Like, is that okay? Is that enough? Like, how many journals should I have in my library? And if I don't journal, okay, is that right or wrong? And should I read another book on top of that? And like, and when I do that, should I find a verse on like, you know, the version Bible app and then post that verse with some cool graphic and throw it on social media and hope a lot of people like it? You're feeling the tension. You should be in the Bible because we want to, because we want to know more of him. But we shouldn't be going through like, God, I'm so sorry. I wish I, I know I should be doing better. Like I was just thinking about this. If my son or my daughter comes to me and every time they come to me, the first thing they say out of my, their mouth is, Dad, I know I should be better. My first thought is, what am I doing to make you feel that? Right? And I'm like, my father in heaven has already proved that he loves me and accepts me. Like, when he looks at me, he's like, you are my son, and I am well pleased with you, not because of how many times you read your Bible, not because of how many times you do this and that. Like, folks, we got to be careful of how we set these things on top of ourselves, because then we start to place them on, on top of other people. And when we do that, we start to judge them without even realizing it. Even ourselves, we judge ourselves. And here's what is dangerous about all of this. You, this, this is the point right here. Whenever we judge someone based upon an external spiritual discipline or practice, we are inadvertently saying the cross is not enough. And when you judge yourself for your lack of, and you feel guilty for your lack of, you are telling yourself that the cross is not enough. God has forever deemed Jesus enough. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you based upon diet, or festivals. Listen, you can eat that food. That's fine. If that's you, go ahead, eat that food. Like imagine for a moment if we had a legalistic ordinance in the church today saying you got to follow Jesus and not eat brisket. I told you I'm getting brisket in every sermon. How many would leave the church? <laughs> Do you drink alcohol or don't you drink alcohol? I can always tell when alcohol is a legalistic thing is when I go out to eat with people and they don't know if they should or shouldn't order a drink because I'm, I'm a 
pastor? Or they order a drink, and they, or they offer me a drink, and I say, I, I don't drink. And they're like, ooh. And I'm like, listen, listen, listen. It's not a religious conviction. It's a self-control issue. I have a problem with it. I don't drink because of that. But if you're free to drink and you're of age, <clears throat> if you're 21, you know, if you're 21, <clears throat> like, then you can, like, right? And if it's in moderation, it's good. But if you give it to drunkenness, you shouldn't. If you're not, if your conscience isn't clear, you shouldn't do it. The Bible gives these parameters. Like, Paul, like, we have so much freedom because of Jesus. And Paul's like, listen, these are all a shadow. All of these dates and these orders, they were all pointing to Jesus. And now that he has come, it's all done on the cross, the burial, and the resurrection, and the ascension. It's it. You are full in him. You have everything you need in him. And now when you want to do it, it's out of a motivation of, I want to. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to serve him. And yes, even there's moments where you have to because you don't feel like it, but you're not doing it because you're trying to prove or earn something. So important. Let no one judge you. Let no one judge you based on questions of food, drink, with regard to festival, new moon, Sabbath, shadow of things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Let no one say that you're not saved. Let no one say that you're not spiritual. Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism, like really severe personal flesh removal things, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions or puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. Let no one disqualify you. Based upon like, do you fast a lot? Are you married or not married? Because then they would even say like marriage is bad. Extreme forms of asceticism and worship of angels? Like, what's that about? Like, they're, they're going on. They're talking about their visions. And Paul says they're puffed up. They're, like, they're, they're senseless. They're just puffed up on these visions and these encounters. Here's what's happening. This worship of angels, these, these outsiders, they're coming in with this disguise of humility. They're saying, we aren't good enough to approach God directly. So um, we fast and we pray and we do these severe forms of withdrawal on ourselves so that we can have these visions with angels and we can have these spiritual encounters. And when we have these spiritual encounters, we give our request to them in hopes that we interact with the right spirit and that spirit will then take our request to God. And so what they end up doing is they talk about these visions and these extra spiritual encounters and all these things without ever talking about Jesus. They're basically saying, this is it. You've got to have these visions. You've got to have these extra spiritual counters. Like when you worship, you've got to have the goosebumps and the goose pimple thingies. Like you've got to feel it. You've got to have these moments. You got like, wait, you're telling me like when you worship or when you pray, you're not caught up in the third heaven and talking to spiritual beings? And like, like you go directly to God. Like that's just wrong. This can be easily equated to um, some folks in Catholic circles who feel the need to pray to Mary or other patron saints and things like that. Well, we don't need it. That wall is, is gone, and Hebrews 4 says that because of Jesus, we could boldly approach the throne of grace. We can come to God. We don't need an intermediary. And they're not even really humble. They're not even saying it's like we're not good enough to come to God. What they're 
boasting about is they're, they're super spiritual. We see things you don't see. We talk to angels that you don't talk to. Oh, you don't have an angel? Oh, you're missing out. Paul's like, they're not connected to the head. They're not connected to Jesus. Like, folks, like as Christians, we can have these experiences. We can have these powerful encounters and moments with with God. Absolutely, we can have these things where his grace and his love overwhelms us. But if it doesn't lead us to mission, if it doesn't lead us back to Jesus, it's wrong. Period. They're not boasting about Jesus. They're not even concerned about the, the mission to follow Jesus, they're just loving their own personal encounters and they're bragging about it. Look at me, I'm super spiritual. I talk to angels. Jesus, like when we follow him, we have these few and far between mountaintop experiences and when we do, guess what? We're going to come back down and the transfiguration is a great example of this. Peter and James and John, they're seeing Jesus and a Moses and Elijah show up and they're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And then they hear the Father's voice from heaven. They're like, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. And then there's this little line before he disappears and he's like, listen to him. Goes back down on the mountain. Jesus, before he sends, he gives a great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. Listen, if our worship, if our spiritual encounters don't move us into mission, we are more obsessed with the encounter than we are with Jesus. Here's a great way to know if you fall victim to this. Have you ever walked out of a church service and said this? I just didn't feel it today. Or maybe you said it this way. Worship was pretty good today. Or worship was better last week. It was, nah, it was okay today. Anybody? I start to go, Was Jesus' goodness, like, really good last week and not so good this week? Like, was Jesus' worth and value of our worship excellent last week and not so excellent this week? What we're really saying is, I didn't feel it, so therefore, it wasn't that good. That's a tough one. It doesn't matter. What matters is being connected to the head, which the whole church grows. It grows from a growth that comes from God. In other words, it's organic growth. We can't force it. We can't make it happen. He does it. He grows it when he chooses to grow it. Right? We got to be careful because our spirituality cannot, cannot be quantified. We can never quantify our spirituality. We can't do it by legalistic efforts, nor can we do it by our spiritual experiences. It's all about Jesus. And he goes on to say here in this last part, he's like, listen, if with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, rhetorical question, Right, Because if we understand that therefore, if you already died with him and you've been buried with him, you've been raised alive with him, if that's all true and that's true of you, 
Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to all the things that perish as their use, according to human precepts and teachings. Look at verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I am in no way, shape, or form saying disciplines aren't good. They are good. Dietary laws and all that stuff in the Old Testament, they were good. They had a purpose. But legalism is a slippery slope. When it becomes something that we quantify to show that we're good enough, we've done enough, I hit my quota, all these types of things, it, sleeps into, it slips into legalism. And when it causes us to judge others, when it causes us to lose our joy when we come to God and it feels hard and we always feel not good enough, when you feel like we're never doing enough, we're never praying enough. Paul's like, listen, you're still living by the elementary ways of the world. Like that, it, it's done. It's all done. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says this, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, legalism. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision or accept one aspect of the law, if you accept one thing to prove yourself worthy and right to be of God, Christ will be no advantage to you. If you think, in other words, what Paul's saying is like, if you think that just by doing one little thing, you can add value. If by one little thing, you think you can convince God that you're good enough or not good enough, Christ is of no value. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. If you want to do one little thing to prove yourself valid to God, oh, he goes on, he's like, well, you've got to keep the whole law, and by the way, keep it perfectly. You are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. That's strong language. And then if we were to continue to read this, he starts talking about the person, the group of people, the outsiders who are bringing this legalistic thing. If it, all of a sudden he goes on, it's like... Um, Hey, it's in the Bible. Verse 11. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? I'm talking about grace in Christ. In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Here we go. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you, in other words, those who are bringing this Jesus plus mentality, would emasculate themselves. That's strong. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Now here it is, because we go, well, if I'm free, well, that's going to give me rights to sin, right? No, no. He's like, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we love God, it necessarily moves right into loving others. It's grace. Church, I want you to hear this. The church needs to be the place where people on the outside this should be the place. This should be the community where people understand love and acceptance. They should know that they belong here. 
It doesn't matter if they're a believer. It doesn't matter if they're an unbeliever. It doesn't matter if they're a skeptic. It doesn't matter if they're a prostitute. It doesn't matter if they're a drug addict. It doesn't matter if they're Catholic or Baptist or Lutheran. It doesn't matter how they dress. You can come to church in sandals and shorts and a tank top. You can be all tatted up. You can have earrings. You could, whatever. They should be able to come here and feel loved and accepted. And the church should let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit because he does a way better job at it than we do. Now, church, listen. When people in the outside world say that the church is judgmental, unfortunately, they're right. Not everybody, but generally, they're right. Let's stop and love them. Let God do what he does best. So this morning, my challenge for all of us, because I know a message like this, it's all over the place. But maybe this morning, you are caught in a legalistic trap right now. I know some of you feel guilty and condemned when Jesus has already loved you and freed you and given you joy. Some of you just can't stop the cycle of coming to God in prayer or in the Bible or in study or church, and you cannot stop the thought in your head, God, I'm sorry I could be doing more. God, I'm sorry I could be doing better. You need to see him for who he is. This morning, if Jesus is all that you want, if you desire to walk by grace and to walk by his spirit, as Paul says in Galatians, if you walk by the spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. If this morning all you want to do is walk in the freedom and the joy that is ours in Jesus, I want to encourage you to stand this morning. If you want to lay your burdens down, the guilt and the shame and the garbage and the baggage in your life, if you want this morning to stop being a judgmental person, if you're tired of being judgmental, if you're tired of being self-righteous, and if you're tired of thinking that I have to do this on my own, I want you to stand this morning. Maybe this morning, maybe this morning you felt judged by another brother and sister in Christ based upon your religious preference, based upon the music you like, based upon how you dress, based upon what you eat. I don't know. I want to encourage you to stand this morning. If you're tired of trying to earn his love, if you're tired of trying to prove to God that you're good enough, tired of trying to keep it all together, I want to encourage you to stand because what I want to do is pray for you. I just want to ask you just to simply, if, the, if, if you resonate with that, just to put your hands out, just in a posture, like, God, I need you, and I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you as my brothers and sisters. Father, we are your children. You love us. You poured out your grace for us. You paid off our debt with your life. It is paid in full. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We have nothing more to prove. We have nothing. We, we. Father, we ask that you would give us one desire a heart of one desire, one mind, 
And it's to be simply all about Jesus. Lord, forgive us for judging other people. Forgive us for judging the ones you love. Forgive us for judging ourselves. Forgive us for thinking that the cross is not enough. Forgive us for returning back to a yoke of slavery. Lord, I'm asking that this morning by your spirit. Oh, Jesus, by your spirit, would you give us freedom? Lord, I'm asking that you would use this song as a statement of faith. Would it be the anthem of our lives?